Conflict can be a very messy thing, uh, so much so that it can be quite helpful to stop, to pause, to breathe, to take a moment, even, frankly, when you're right in the middle of it, shocking as it may sound. Let me give you a scenario. Let's say you've got two churchgoers who are jammed up over something, and uh, it can oftentimes be oh so helpful to slow down, to take a breath, uh, to, to engage in conversation with that other party, to, to seek to draw them out, to try and understand where they're coming from, to listen and listen really carefully, and then, wait for it, to stop, not to say anything, to just stop, to just stop. And may, maybe if you say this much, to just say, you know, I really appreciate your having shared your convictions on this matter with me. I really appreciate that. That's helping me to understand where you're coming from and what it is that's important to you and weighing upon you in, in this. I really do. And it's helping me to process this, and I want to process it further, so much so that I don't want to go any further right now. I want to take some time to, to, to ponder this and pray, and can we get back together soon to talk some more? To slow down, to slow down... Um, to pause, to stop, that can be golden, absolutely golden in whatever realm of conflict we're talking about, whatever arena that that might be. Because our haste to assess things, the situation, the other party, ourselves, our haste to do that bungles up everything. It gets us into a whole mess of trouble. And that's not just true on the horizontal sphere, us one to another. Our haste and the way we assess things and just assume, well, this is the way it must be, also gets into trouble with our relationship with God. Our haste in how we assess ourselves and what it means to approach Him and the assumptions that we bring to the table in that also bungle things up and really mess them up pretty badly as well. If you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, as we're moving on uh, through this series in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the first of the four Gospels in the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, then Mark, and then Luke, and then John. We're in Matthew, starting in, ver excuse me, in chapter 23, we're going to read verses 1 through 12, and this is in the midst of a very busy Tuesday uh, that week before Jesus was crucified, buried, and then rose again on that Sunday. Uh, there's a lot going on on that Tuesday, a lot of conversations taking place, a lot of conflict taking place, and some pretty poor assessments of self and God in the, in the midst of that as well. And Jesus is speaking right into that. Well, so please follow along with me, if you would. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Hear now God's word. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, 
And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, we confess here at the outset that we are hasty people, hasty in our assessments of ourselves, typically thinking a whole lot more of ourselves or a lot of ourselves than is warranted, Um, oftentimes thinking far too little of the people around us, and really far too little um, of you. Uh, We are people of presumption. We are people who are filled with pride. We also confess that we are blind because we don't even know how to confess how filled with pride we are. We ask that you'd help us to see that a bit better here this morning for our soul's sake, for our good's sake, um, and even more for your name's sake. Lord Jesus, thank you for your speaking so pointedly and your warnings given that Tuesday, help us to hear them well here on this Sunday. We pray in your name. Amen. I am currently re-watching the 2018 reboot of Lost in Space on Netflix. In case you don't know, you ought to know, in case you don't know, that is a reimagining of the 1960s series by the same title, which itself was a reimagining of the classic book, The Swiss Family Robinson, many, many, many years ago. So here's the basic premise in the reboot. You have several families who are setting out to colonize the Alpha Centauri star system. Of course something goes wrong, and they end up all crash landing on this planet where they face many dangers. Now this is not like the cheesiness of its predecessor. This is a gritty galaxy. The dangers are, in fact, real, uh, and and the heartache is real as well. These folks are truly lost. It's not as though they just took a wrong turn, and they know where they are, and they just need to kind of figure out how to get back on track. I mean, they they are truly lost. They have no idea where they are, even what galaxy they're in. Their star charts can't help them. They're inapplicable. They're nonsense because of where they are. Truly, truly lost, and they're desperately trying to get their bearings because everything has been flipped upside down. Everything has been flipped upside down. Not unlike Jesus' kingdom and the current order of things on this earth. It is Jesus' kingdom has rightly been described as an upside-down kingdom, not in the sense of like Alice in Wonderland, where it's just all nonsense, not, not in that sense whatsoever. 
but just in the sense that the values are completely upended, just, just utterly, utterly flipped. Uh, think with me. Jesus, Jesus doesn't come bringing advice. Jesus is a subversive. He has come to bring about a revolution. He has not just come to tune things up a little bit, but rather to overthrow things. It's the upside-down kingdom. You may be wondering, well, how so? Well, think with me. You and I live for, whether we know it or not, whether we'll even admit it or not, in many ways, our lives are typified by striving after power, comfort, success, and recognition. That's the stuff we live for. That's what gets me up in the morning, and you too. And Jesus says, it's not about that at all. If you follow me, because, of course, the disciple is not above his master, if you, his, his or her master, if you follow me, your life will look like this. Weakness, sacrifice, grief, and exclusion. Or, as we read just a moment ago in Matthew 23, verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see? This is an upside-down kingdom where the values have been reversed. Jesus has ushered in this upside-down kingdom, and it transforms, it changes absolutely everything, including what I alluded to earlier, how we assess ourselves how we assess ourselves, and what it means to approach the living God. It changes everything. It transforms everything. It shifts everything. Well, again, you might be, well, how so? How do you see that in this text? In two things, in two ways. It's there in your outline, points one, point two. We see it in what Jesus condemns, and we see it in what Jesus affirms the upside-down nature of this kingdom. We see it in what he condemns. He condemns what we affirm, and he affirms what we condemn. Everything is upside down. Let's look at it. So what Jesus condemns. Now, before I go any further with that, I feel like I have to just kind of go a little aside here. Because a lot of, I know no few of us may feel really odd about like a sentence that says, that Jesus condemns X. Like, wait, 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 wait. I thought you said Jesus was loving. How, do, how does love and condemnation, how do those two things go together? They just don't seem to fit. They seem out of place. I don't get it. Okay, so a couple of days ago, I'm driving home from work. I haven't shared this story with anybody. So it's a true story. I'm not making this up. A couple of days ago, I'm driving home from work, and I have to stop because right in front of me is a two-foot-long lizard. I get out of the car because I'm thinking, what is that? And I'm wondering, what do I, can I have a box? What do I do? To the garbage truck coming the other way, he stops. People behind him and me, we're all stopped. And I get out, and I, I looked at it, and then I got home and looked on the Internet, and it's a bearded dragon. Now, you need to understand, bearded dragons hail from Australia, <laughs> not Middle Tennessee. This was a tan bearded dragon. So I, I say to myself, self, he ain't from around here. <laughs> he doesn't fit. Now, just so you know, I couldn't get a hold of him. I know, it's very, very sad because he went scurrying off into a drainage pipe, so I don't know where he is now. 
maybe in your backyard. Um, but the point being, it, he doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't belong. It doesn't seem to, okay, that's, I know that's probably how a lot of us feel when you say Jesus condemns something. But understand this. There are some things it is unloving not to condemn. There are some things in this world that are un, it is unloving not to condemn. So those things do, they can well go together very easily. So what does Jesus condemn? What do we see? Well, the first thing we're going to look at is something that's called antinomianism. Now, that's not actually in the text. I'm going to own that right now. But it leads us into something that it is, and it needs to be mentioned here from the start. Antinomianism. What the heck is that? It literally means anti-lawism. It refers to the, 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 the inclination to downplay, if not outright dismiss, the place of, the validity of, the importance of God's commands, his laws in our life. And it is, thrives very nicely in the modern church, I'm sad to say. Uh, oftentimes is, is stemming from a complete misunderstanding of what Paul means when he says that we are set free from the law, a misunderstanding of what Paul means there and an ignoring of what James says when he says that faith without works is dead. God's law, his commands very much have a place in, in the Christian life. Now, what, what, what is the origin? What, where, where does that come from, an inclination towards antinomianism? Where does that come from? Well, think about what it says. It says, I know better. I know better. And so this is how I'm going to live. According to, I want. My friends, that's pride. You can't call it anything else. Ultimately, that is rooted in pride. To say, I know better, and this is how I'm going to live. That's pride. As is, it's, it's horrible cousin, legalism. That's what you see in the text, where we're going here in the next few minutes. Now, here's what's interesting. Antinomianism and legalism look like polar opposites, but their roots are in the same thing, pride. They're rooted in pride. Legalism, what are we talking about here? Well, again, it needs to be said that the law, God's commands, His instructions for us, His precepts have a, a fundamental place in the Christian life. If you want to keep your thumb there in Matthew 23 and go with me to Ephesians 2, just one of a gazillion places that we could look at here. But uh, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 um, makes this point very clearly. Sadly, many of us do not read all the way through just verses 8 and 9, but on to verse 10, which is we need to read as well. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, works um, have a place, a vital place in the Christian life. But legalism takes that and distorts it and twists it. Legalism operates under the delusion that somehow we can earn favor with God and it is okay to add to his commands. Those two things go together within a legalistic framework, that we can earn favor with God and then we can add to his commands. 
And ultimately, all of that is a denial of the gospel. It is an outright denial of the gospel. These scribes and Pharisees that Jesus is warning the crowds and his disciples of were a case study in uh, legalism. Let's look at the text. I'm just going to move through these verses fairly quickly and summarize what we're seeing here as we go. Verses 1 to 3. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach but do not practice. Literally, they don't practice what they preach. They are hypocrites in the worst sort of way. Worst sort of way. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Unlike Jesus, whose, whose uh, burden is light and his yoke is easy, these men burden people down with their man-made teachings, however well-meaning it may be. They burden people down, and they are unwilling, again, unlike Jesus, to help people carry them. It's completely antithetical to a Christ-like oriented life. That's verse 4, picking up in verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Here's the thing. They lived for applause, they paraded their piety, and they loved the praise of man. And Jesus, don't miss this, Jesus clearly condemns this. He cannot speak more strongly against it. You're going to see that as we move, Lord willing, next week into the rest of chapter 23, where he's not just warning the crowds and the disciples about these men, but he will then shift towards speaking right at them. And as though you thought what he said this week is bad, you ain't seen nothing yet to where he's going. He could not speak more strongly against the legalism of these men, especially because they are leaders, but it applies to all of us. It applies to, to, to all of us. So, so it begs a question, I think. What are the signs of this? What are, what are the symptoms of such a disease? We, we ought to know that so we can look at ourselves and, and, and before the Lord and say, where is this in my life? Test me, know my heart, my thoughts. See if there be any unclean, unworthy way within me. Legalism. Here are some signs. Here are some symptoms. One would be powerlessness. Powerlessness. You see, for no matter what the legalist thinks, however well-intentioned they may be, there is absolutely nothing transformative about that life. There is no life there whatsoever. There is no power for change at all in a legalistic lifestyle. None at all. Let me read you uh, this story I came across just here a few days ago. Once a man planted a garden and was delighted when shoots emerged. Every day he watered and weeded and his garden grew until he was ecstatic to see plants bearing produce. However, a few days later he went to his garden and was dismayed. 
every plant showed evidence of hungry rodents and rabbits that raided his crop, so he decided to erect a fence. A few days later, the man again went to his garden and saw the same thing. So he put up another fence and another and another. Every time he checked, he found vermin had raided the garden. Finally, he realized um, critters could go over, through, or under each fence. So he built a brick wall with a deep concrete foundation. Weeks later, he climbed the garden wall and was horrified to find it was choked with weeds. The ground was cracked, the plants wilted, and worst of all, his crop was gone. Trusting in the wall's protection, he had forgotten to tend the garden. He failed to realize the wall was blocking the sun's rays. He also completely overlooked the greatest threat to his garden, the animals that had been inside all along. Legalism, my friends, is marked with a powerlessness. It cannot change. It cannot change us. Which leads me to the next thing, the deceptive power of legalism. It lies. It lies to us. We're self-deceived. You see, legalism is all about the externals. It's all about what's measurable. It's all about what's attainable. And you live in that long enough, and you begin to you become to be self-deluded enough to think you've arrived. That you are, in fact, somehow a Christ-like person. But you're not. You're not. You are self-deluded. Completely and utterly self-deluded. Which then leads to the next thing. Legalism is ultimately divisive because it encourages pride, right? You think you've arrived? It encourages pride, it encourages boasting, it encourages comparisons, it encourages conflict. It is powerless, it is deceptive, it is divisive, and then the last of the four, and it's tied to all the other three, is that it is noxious. And by that I mean it drives people away. People can see through it. They get it. They understand it. They want nothing to do with it. And it ultimately always drives people away. Those are the signs. Those are the symptoms. And again, Jesus, though, has come and upturned all of that. That's what we live for. That's what we, our natural inclinations are. This pride fest that expresses itself so often in legalism, at least in church circles, a lot, Jesus condemns it. Jesus condemns it. The upside-down kingdom forces us to shift our assessment of ourselves and what it means to approach the living God. He condemns the pride of the um, antinomianism. He condemns the pride of the legalism. What then does he affirm? Humility. A gospel-driven, entranced Humility. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the marks of that and the means of that. The marks and the means of humility. What does humility look like? What are, the, what are its signs? What are its symptoms? Well, we don't have to think too hard on that. We see it laid out for us here in the text. Start picking up verse 8. There's a shift here. Verse, picking up verse 8 on to verse 10. But you, and literally you could translate it, but you... You are not, it's such an emphasis here, Jesus knows our temptation and our tendencies, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father, 
who is in heaven, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The point is we are not to chase acclaim. We are not to live for titles. We're not to live for the affirmation of people around us. It's not to say literally there are, we are to avoid titles of all kind. Jesus says that is not what he means. That is not what he's speaking here of a, of a hyper-literalism in our application understanding what he's saying, because clearly in other places you can see, well, that's not, not all what he means. But rather, rather, to, to, because I should point out that even the, the, the titles that he listed here, ultimately, who, who are they for? Jesus. So those titles belong to Jesus and Jesus alone. But we, Okay, so it's not so much about the titles. It's about living for the acclamation, living for the affirmation. It's about uh, doing anything that would encourage a hierarchy of one or a few who would stand above the rest. And he condemns that. He says, rather, we're to live for something completely different. Rather, we were not to be status conscious. If I can put it that way. We're not to be status conscious, but service-oriented. We're not to be status conscious, but service-oriented. So let's pick up in verse 11 and 12. The greatest among you, so you want to be great? The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Seek, but seek not the high places. Seek avenues of service. Seek the lowest of places if you can. Seek not the high, seek, seek the low, as Jesus models for us in John 13. And as Paul speaks in Philippians 2, in the, the Christ hymn, so John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And know if we really grasp the extraordinary reality that we speak of when we use those words, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And he, you know, he, he gets down on the ground and does what only the lowest of the servants would do because nobody else was willing to do it. And he tells them, in essence, this is what I'm doing for you. Now, you go and do that for each other. This is what I'm doing for you. Now, you go and do that for one another. That's the marks, a humility that expresses itself in, in service. Well, what on earth would be the, or maybe we can say in heaven, would be the, or heaven on earth, would be the means towards that? How can such a thing be cultivated in cold-hearted people like you and me? Prideful people. Like you and me, how could that be encouraged and cultivated within our own hearts? Two ways, many, maybe there's many other ways you can put this. I'm just going to put it in two. One, looking to his word. Looking to his word. Laying hold of his promises and taking heed of his warnings. Embracing that, living out of that, and asking ourselves this question. Why does he have to give those to us, those promises and those warnings? What is it about us that makes us in such, in such desperate need of his needing to speak such things to us, the promises and the warnings? But not just that, his, his commands laying hold of his commands and allowing them to settle in 
And not the way with the scribes and the Pharisees, where it's all just kept at a surface level, but rather letting it settle in and, and reckoning and recognizing how quickly, how readily, how easily we break them. It's just, it's, it's natural. That's the natural thing for me to do, is to break his commands willy-nilly within seconds, milliseconds of my waking up every morning. And you think in terms of the heart and what he's after there. How readily we break his commands, violate his, his law, and then letting that convict me. Doesn't that convict you? And then what's that need to do to take us to Jesus? Letting the commands, the warnings settle in, letting the, the promises and the warnings and then the commands settle in and then let all of that drive us to Jesus, which is the second part, not just looking to his word, but looking to Jesus. Looking to his word, and almost you could say, in order to look to Jesus. That we might look to Jesus. As Francis Schaeffer said, in the Christian life, it is something of an, there, is, there is something of an active passivity. So if we would long to grow in this gospel-driven humility that expresses itself in service, there needs to be about us an active passivity, meaning we seek, now think about this, we seek to be transformed. You see the active part in the, in the passive part? We seek to be, that's the active, transformed. We're going after Jesus, going to Jesus, saying, change me. I'm a wreck. Save me. He does all of it. He does all of it. Jesus affirms this as the one, you know, just to kind of play with the wording of verse 11, he is the greatest among us, as the greatest of the servants, the servant. Serving even us. Serving even us. He affirms such humility, gospel-driven humility, that expresses itself in, in service. Let, let me tell you about um, Thomas Chalmers. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Thomas Chalmers. Chalmers was a, well, he lived, uh, was born 1780, died 1847. He was a Scottish preacher and pastor uh, for most, well, pretty much most of all of his life in Glasgow in terms of his um, ministerial time. Uh, he began as uh, the pastor of, of a very wealthy church, uh, Tron Church, there in Glasgow. He was such a preacher that uh, witnesses' accounts said that when he, that man preached, it shut the town down. I mean, the merchants just closed down shops. Uh, his, his sermon pamphlets, you couldn't find them because they, they, they sold so quickly. Uh, it was a, a wealthy congregation. Yet what was interesting is right in the parish next door, St. John's was one of the poorest in the whole city. So Chalmers is here at Tron, and St. John's is over here. And over time, over the course of years, Chalmers found his heart increasingly drawn here to the people at St. John's. Not all at once. In fact, his diary has entries like this. God, give me wisdom and save me from being enraged at the annoyances of the poor. That's why you have a diary. You could speak honestly. Of course, years later, apparently people read it. Um, another one a few years after that. He said, got impatient with a man who called on me. 
But eventually, Chalmers gave up the pastorate at Trons and went to St. John's. Gladly. Gladly. He couldn't be stopped. Why? Why the move? How do you explain that move? Because of something that had moved within. And that can best be explained by the words of one of his sermons. Let me just quote to you a couple lines from one of his own sermons. It is impossible for the heart, by any innate elasticity of its own, to cast the world away from it. The heart is not so constituted, and the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. This may not shock you, that sermon today is known as the expulsive power of a new affection. You can find it online, and I encourage you, read it, and then read it again, and then read it again. Expulsive power of a new affection. That gets to the answer to the question, how can I be changed? How can you be changed? What will rid me of my pharisaical impulses, my legalism? What will rid me? What will change me? What will change you? The expulsive power of a new affection. And my friends, it is not enough to just point our fingers at the scribes and Pharisees and say, look how bad they were. I'm not going to be like that. Don't you be like that? I'm not going to be like that. Evil scribes and Pharisees, bad scribes and Pharisees, don't be like that. That is to be a scribe and a Pharisee. That is to fall right into the trap. The only hope we have is the expulsive power of a new affection. Now, you might be, well, how do I cultivate that? Where does that, how does that happen? You go to Jesus. The act of passivity, you go to Jesus. And you say whatever you want. Here's some words I'll give for as a suggestion. Lord, I'm filthy. And you washed me. And I get filthy every day, and you keep washing me. That's what I am, and that's what you do. It's what I am, and it's what you do. Would you please? Grow that humility, that gospel-driven humility in my heart. Make me a servant. Make me a servant. That's the expulsive power of a new affection, and it doesn't come about by true grit. It comes about through the true servant, the one who's greatest among us, doing that work within us. That's how it comes. That's the only way it comes. His is an upside-down kingdom. It doesn't work according to our values, according to our rules, and it demands that we reassess ourselves and what it means to come to him. The scribes and the Pharisees, it's worth noting that um, 
how, what a stark contrast that is. There's a lot written in, in leadership journals and books these days. It's interesting. I did a search for this on Amazon, by the way, just under books. Leadership this past week. Over, I didn't go through the hits because it was over 40,000 hits. And that's just stuff that's, I guess, still in print and available, right? Um, servant leadership is a hot topic these days. Um, the, the idea, basically, that the, the leader, if you, if you understand this rightly, is to share power, not just you know, clutch it, but, but to share power and to, to serve the people around him or her setting them free, empowering them to go and do the things that they, they need to do. And there's a lot of wisdom in this, but I just got to say this, and it is not original. It is not original. Uh, Douglas South Hall Freeman, uh, he was born in 1836 and died in 1953. He was a prolific author and et uh, newspaper editor, commentator, historian, and biographer. He's best known for his multi-volume works on Robert E. Lee and George Washington, for both of which he won Pulitzer Prizes. As though that workload was not enough, because basically he worked two full-time jobs for decades as a newspaperman and a historian. He was also a lecturer at the Army War College for several years, and you can read the transcripts of some of the addresses that he gave there, and they are well worth reading. And one in particular stuck with me for years was he, he was analyzing the, the lessons you can learn from the leadership of Lee and Washington and Lincoln and why it was that they were so successful and how it was that they were so beloved by their men. And what Freeman points out in the course of these lectures is these three simple points that are still worth hearing today. Three simple points if we just you know, take them and run with them. And, and the first is this. Know your stuff. Know your stuff. Know what your goals are, your objectives are, and don't be satisfied, stagnant in your studies about your goals and your objectives. Know your stuff. Know your stuff. The second thing, the second thing is be a man. Now, ladies, sorry, it was the Army War College in the 40s and 50s. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> be a man, meaning a person of integrity, of character, Someone who is worth following, worth emulating. Know your stuff. Be a man. Thirdly, take care of your men. Take care of your men. Equip them. Give them what they need. Whatever it takes, make sure they have what they need. Empower them. Free them to do what it is that they need to do. So... That's what Freeman was saying. But here's the thing. That was an original to Freeman. All he's doing, all he is, is just a mouthpiece for Lee and Washington and Lincoln because he's just studied them and, and you know, he's just saying this is what they did. But it wasn't original to them. It wasn't original to them either. You trace it back. Where do you find the originator of such servant leadership? And it's Jesus. And it's why where things such as listed there to the degree that they are pursued, you see flourishing. You see flourishing. Um, you think in terms of what's, what's at, the, at the root of what, what Freeman was trying to get at, even in those lectures, even in that setting. What he's talking about is the necessity of the leader to be humble. To reject all of our, our natural vestiges and inclinations and tendencies towards pride 
and rather to embrace humility. And again, we see that nowhere better than in Jesus. And to the extent that we will embrace that and breathe that in and recognize what he has been that for us in coming down from heaven for us, washing his followers' feet, living and dying in our place as the servant of servants, as that makes its way into our hearts, it'll change us. It will compel and impel us towards being that for one another and living in this upside-down kingdom. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, it, it, in some ways, it, it does make sense that yours is an upside-down kingdom. How else could it not be if you say that you have come to reclaim, that you've come to redeem, that you've come to renew, well, that has to mean that the old order has to give way to the new. And the old order simply cannot stand. And so it's upside down. But Lord, we ask that you would help us not to just stop and say, oh yeah, everything out there is going to turn upside down, but rather what's inside, in me, has to be turned upside down. All the things that I think are so grand, that we think are so worth pursuing, need to be laid down. And you first. Oh, would you make us gospel-humble people Impelled in the service, would you have mercy upon us? We pray in your name. Amen.